If you would please turn in your Bibles again to the book of Titus as we finish the salutation, the introduction this morning. Uh, I spent more time in it because, well, for one thing, it's just so rich with what Paul writes here in these opening verses of Titus in the first chapter. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to prayer and please pray for me as I preach the text. Pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, it is uh, an awesome task and responsibility to preach the gospel. And yet you have called me to that task. I pray for your grace, as I know I'm not sufficient in and of myself by any means whatsoever. And pray, O God, that you would bless me and that you would be with me in spite of my weaknesses and that you would be with the congregation that they would hear and that you would apply this word to us, O God. We pray that any that are here that are bound up in some type of lawlessness, bound up in some type of despair, and that you would use the word this morning uh, to quicken them. And pray, Lord, that if there are any here outside of faith, that you would use this word preached this morning to bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Some things are essential in this life, some things that we have to have in order to live, some things that we have to have in order for something to operate properly. For example... An automobile, you have to have petrol, you have to have a battery, you have to have a starter. All these kind of things work in conjunction to cause the car to move. For the human body, you have to have food, you have to have water, uh, you have to have shelter. You can imagine what it would have been like in January or February when it got so cold if we were outside. Uh, we would not have been alive today had we been forced to be outside. So we need these things in order that we might live in this world. Well, the Apostle Paul, in the opening of this section of the book of Titus, places an emphasis upon the proper perspective and the proper place of preaching in the life of the believer. It is essential that as Christians we give a high priority to preaching and that we give a high priority to hearing the Word of God preached and to receive it in faith and trust. And apart from doing that, then we are simply not going to be the kind of Christian we should be if we are Christians at all. One thing that should be true of every believer is they love the Word of God and that they love hearing the Word of God read and they love hearing the Word of God preached. Remember in the book of Nehemiah how the people sat all day to hear the Word of God read and they praised God as they heard the Scriptures read 
We have a great, great blessing from God in the gospel. This life is difficult at times. This life is heartbreaking at times. And yet we have behind the curtain, if you will, of difficulty. The gospel and the promise of God to be with us always and to give us eternal life. You remember, as we saw this, Paul's call to preaching, Paul's purpose in preaching. And the purpose was to give a message that was from heaven, to give a message that was from God, to give a message that promised life in two ways, a richer life here lived by knowing who we are in Christ Jesus and a life lived in anticipation, a life lived in anticipation of glory, where we shall be with Christ and we shall be with the redeemed of God. And it shall be that we will live among the land where the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And there will be no more sin. And there will be no more despair. And there will be no more worry. And never will we be, we, will we be afraid again. There are things in this life that cause us to fear, are there not? We have experiences day by day. We don't know how they're going to end. And sometimes we are afraid. In glory, there will be no fear. In glory, there will be no uncertainty. What happens to see this morning as we look now at Paul's passion in preaching, because the gospel message has the power to give eternal life, we who have the opportunity should sit under expectantly the preaching of the word of God. God works in and through the proclamation of his word as his people. We need to give ourselves to that. And we need to do so with expectation of God working. And so we come expectantly, we come in humility for the preaching of the word of God. The first thing then, or the last, actually point number three, Paul's Paul's passion in preaching. Uh, The next phrase, and we touched on it a little bit this past Lord's Day, uh, should annihilate all doubt in the heart of anyone who has concern about there being a future resurrection. As he says here in the text, God does not lie. Contemplating the event, there will be a last day. There will be the sound of the trumpet. This is according to the Scriptures. There will be the descent of Christ from glory coming into the world. There will be the resurrection of the dead. Uh, The bodies will be exhumed, if you will. And they come out in perfection. A prototype for this is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And you remember when He came out of the grave, many saints rose with Him. Many of the saints, and it says they went into the city and they were seen by many people. They were a part of the first fruits of those who sleep. This is what Paul's describing here. That when you're dead in the ground, the day will come when the dead will be given up by the power of Christ and the power of his resurrection. It's not a conjecture. It's biblical. Matthew 24, 30 and 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. First Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 and 14. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were raised, each one of them, according to what they had done. Raised imperishable for the believer. We learned that in 1 Corinthians 15. 
We will be raised imperishable. We will be raised in perfection. So that those who are Christians in this life are blind, when they are raised, they will see. Those who are Christians in this life who are deaf, they will be hearing. Those who are Christians in this life who are in wheelchairs will be walking. Will you be raised in perfection? Will be raised in perishable? Will be raised in glorious bodies, according to the Scriptures? That's what awaits us as Christians. That's not to deny nor to forget at all. When we die, we go to be with the Lord, but that's not the end of our redemption. The end of our redemption is our resurrection from the dead. And the question for you to ask yourself in all sincerity, do you believe that? Does your faith take you to that position that you're confident there's going to be a last day? And on that last day, Christ will descend from heaven with the angels of glory and the dead in Christ will be raised and they will live forever. We are not simply waiting to die and go to heaven. We are anticipating, as we should here, as Paul describes it, the resurrection of the dead. When we shall be brought back to life, when we shall be with the Lord forever, as it says in the Scriptures. Now, Paul knew there could be some doubters. There may be doubters here this morning. Uh, There may be doubters who think this is just too fantastic. How could it possibly be? Well, our God is omnipotent. Our God is all-powerful. And Christ rules over all things. So Paul, in order to deal with those who might have a doubt, who might have a question, says something that should completely lay to rest forever, all unbelief, all doubt. When he says this, our God never lies. Our God has promised it from ages past. And then two important things to notice here in, the, in, the, in our text. In the first place, uh, God who promised us there would be a resurrection does not lie. Lying is contrary to the very nature of God. We lie at times. We may do so not to hurt somebody's feelings. You can be tactful and be truthful, I think, at the same time. Uh, But we, at times, don't tell the truth. God always tells the truth. When God told Adam and Eve, and he promised them that they would have life if they did not disobey him by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he did not lie. They sinned, they fell, and brought ruin into the entire creation. When God promised Abraham he would have a descendant, and through that seed of Abraham all the world would be blessed, that came true with the birth of Christ. He did not lie. When God told King David he would have an heir on the throne forever, he did. The person of Jesus Christ, the son of David. God did not lie. When the God of Israel Uh, told the prophet of old Isaiah that his son would be born of a virgin and that uh, he would be called mighty, uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and the government would be upon his shoulders. He did not lie. And that came true 700 years later with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. God promised you, Christian, that you would be raised from the dead, and God has not lied to us as his children. Matthew Henry said this, It is the honor of God that he cannot lie or deceive. And this is the comfort of believers whose treasure is laid up in his faithful promise. And again, John Calvin, when we realize that it is God who has spoken to us, we are freed from all doubts and misgivings. And him is sure and infallible truth. 
As Paul reminds that God cannot lie, it is not therefore a question of relying on men which would lead us to distrust anything that was said. What comes from the mouth of God is absolutely certain and should be completely assured. The Bible tells us the word of God is rich. The Bible tells us the word of God is pure. The Bible tells us the word of God is desired to be desired more than gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Hebrews 16, 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more concisely, more convincingly to the heirs of promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope that is set before us. God cannot lie. The scripture from beginning to end is true. If I may read this quote to you, it is because he is a God of truth that he will not, indeed he cannot lie accordingly. Just because God is rational, self-consistent in all ways, and necessarily truthful, we should know that his inscripted propositional revelation to us, the Holy Scriptures, is of necessity also rational, self-consistent, and true. What comes to us from God is consistent and true. Always. We are in error when we don't believe the scriptures. We are in error when we disobey the scriptures. Because God who has said thou shalt do this and not do that as, as Charles talked about this morning. That's truth. And we can rest in that. So it is that the uh, word of God comes to us uh, from the promises from a God who does not lie. The second place God promised this in ages past. This is a reference to God's eternal decree. God has no new ideas. In eternity past, he determined to redeem a people for himself. Matthew 25, 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is our God. From eternity past, he looked upon us, who had, would have rebelled against him, who were sinful creatures and determined to save us simply because he loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then again, Second Timothy 1, 7 through 9, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel that by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before ages began. We are not privy to the eternal counsel of God. We have no idea what God did in eternity past or what he thought. What we do know is it comes to us through the revelation of God. We know that what he has given to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but things revealed to us. And so that, in order that we may adore him, that we may love him, that we may labor for the cause of the gospel in him. And so this goes back, as he puts it here in the text in ages past to Genesis 3:15, The first revelation of the Christ to come, Genesis 3:15. You know the text. You know the situation, and that on the hills of Adam and Eve's fallen rebellion comes the promise of God to send the Savior. So it was promised in ages past that came to fruition. 
And the timing concerning the coming of Christ into the world, the fulfillment of the promises and the promises of God are none of our business. We live in faith. We live in trust. We believe. The timing is not our affair. I've told you that uh, people speculate all the time about when Jesus is going to come back. That's a waste of time and effort. We don't know. Dr. Robertson in class said it is imminent, and that is we see successive fulfillment in each generation. We don't know when he's coming back. What we do know is he is coming back, and that's what's significant for us. Not the when, but the certainty of the matter. That which was hidden in the past was revealed with the birth of Christ, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Because, you see, we were condemned by the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, uh, spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you were no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God at the exact moment, at the exact month, the exact day, the exact hour, the exact minute, the exact second decreed by the Lord Christ was born. And so what we're seeing in the Old Testament through pictures and shadows comes to fruition with the birth of Christ. So there there it is, you see. And there are the angels who understood having a much fuller revelation of God than we do. As Christ was born, they praised his name. And even down to the place where Christ was born, it was foretold in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origins is from of old, from ancient days. There is nothing arbitrary. There is nothing uncertain about the decree of God. There is nothing uncertain about the promises of God given to us either. Uh, We can live our lives in hope because we know our God has promised us life in Christ. And we know our God has promised us resurrection from the dead. And it's quite inappropriate for us to question these things. What can cause us to question it? Well, a bit of providence is difficult, can it not? As we are living our lives and something horrible happens and we can't understand why God allowed this to happen or why God decreed this to happen, it makes no sense to us. When I was talking to Renee Foster yesterday on the way to the airport in Sugarland, she planned to retire this year. She's been teaching at the Christian school, same school where Melinda taught, for like 34 years. And she was going to retire this year. And Scott Griffith, the headmaster, you know, I couldn't believe it that she was actually going to retire because she'd been there so long. Two of her daughters teach there, and she said this, I didn't plan on this. You know, she was going to retire. She was going to enjoy her children and grandchildren. She was going to do things with her husband, but that's all changed. A providence like that can cause us to wonder and question God's goodness. What's going on here? But we should never do that. And when we are ever tempted to ever question the goodness of God, we go back to the cross of Calvary. We see God's love expressed to us there in such a magnificent way, meeting the greatest need that we had. Listen, the greatest need we had is not being cured of disease. That's not our greatest need. Our greatest need is having our sin taken care of, redemption. 
That's our greatest need. And so there God's love expressed to us in a very definite way as Christ died on the cross of Calvary. And as he was raised from the dead, as we read in the book of Romans again, raised for our justification so we can rest always understanding that God loves us. No matter what we are facing, no matter what we are dealing with, he loves us. And the purpose of preaching is to communicate that word revealed. That's why Paul is called to preach, to give the gospel to people. Uh, it is not to set forth a uh, 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 fancy uh, Eloquent speech. Uh, it is not uh, and to give opinions on spiritual matters. It is not to speculate about God, things that we don't know. That speculative theology that can lead to disaster. It is to take the given, uh, the, the, the word of God given to us and to proclaim that word of God given to us. That's the, that's the job of the preacher. Preach the word. So Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge you. This is very emphatic. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. He says, with God as a witness, with Christ as a witness, he says, I charge you, Timothy. Uh, Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So the preaching of the gospel is intended to produce change in the life of the hearer. It is to produce conversion. It is to produce sanctification. So that's why the Apostle Paul says to him, uh, says to Timothy, uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. This uh, presupposes something. Paul's message to Timothy here. In these verses, Dr. Rayburn, I've told you before, my homiletics professor in seminary, he was a dear, dear godly man, uh, had a good relationship with Dr. Dr. Rayburn. One day he said to us in class, you may have heard me say this before, I've been here 29 years. He said, gentlemen, whenever you preach, I want you to imagine me sitting on the back row with my hand raised, say, tell me what I'm supposed to do. In light of what you've just read, a lot of what you have just preached, tell me what I am supposed to do. And so we see that here in the proclamation of the scriptures in Timothy. Um, in light of what you have just read, it assumes you have things in your life that you need to change. Some things you were doing that you shouldn't be doing, some things that you need to do that you are not doing. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Attitudes that are not godly. Attitudes that need to change. The way that you treat your wife, the way that you treat your friends, whatever the case may happen to be. The fact that you love the world too much. That you don't have time to think about the world to come. And it's so easy to get caught up into that mindset. Because this is pleasant, is it not? It offers pleasant things to us, does it not? The world has things that are rich and enjoyable, and it's fine to enjoy them, but they are to never, ever take the place of first position in our lives so that Christ is taking the back seat, and the last thing we think about is heaven. Christ is in glory, 
Christ is in heaven, and it should be that we have a desire to be there with him. As Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Not that we have a martyr complex. Not that we hurry our death. But we should have a longing, a healthy longing to be in glory. That should be something that is in our hearts and minds. To know that we will one day be with Christ. And to know that when we are there with him, we'll be freed from all the difficulties of this world. And we should be able to communicate with Jesus face to face. That should excite us. That should certainly have important place in our lives. And so uh, it means that the Word of God preaches intended to bring change in your life as you sit and listen to it. That also means that throughout the week you need to be preparing to come to worship. Sunday morning, a friend of mine told me, I'm not going to tell you who he was, some of you know him, he's not here in Houston. He said that they'd be fussing and carrying on and trying to get ready to go in a hurried fashion to go to worship and you know, they'd be arguing in the car, and they get out of the car. Hey, how you doing? Everything was just wonderful. He was a preacher. <laughs> so we understand on Sunday morning, sometimes we have difficulties. So we've been preparing to come to worship the entire week, praying for me. God, give him the grace to understand the text. Give him the grace to write a sermon that is true to the text. Take away his doubts. Take away his uncertainty. Give him power in the pulpit. And the same thing for Charles and the Sunday school teachers that teach. We pray for them throughout the week so that all of a sudden Sunday morning comes and it almost is a surprise to us. Well, we've got to get ready. We've got to get up and get dressed. We've got to go. Hurry. Well, it should not come as a surprise to us. We should anticipate it throughout the week. And we're going to worship our God this day. We're going to be with God's people this day. This is a good day. This is a great day. Then we are with God's people, and we're going to hear that Word of God read. And we're going to hear that Word of God preached. And we're praying, Lord God, use that Word in my life to rebuke, uh, to exhort, uh, to improve my soul, to improve my spirit, that I might be more like Christ. And that should be our desire, you see, to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, it comes to us, the primary means of grace is the proclamation of the Word of God. There was a lady in, in Muscle Shoals who was, went to a church, and she said her preacher would preach from the Reader's Digest, would preach from novels he was reading, and he did it for 20 years. And I thought, why in the world did they put up with that? It doesn't make any sense, unless they liked it. Maybe they enjoyed hearing him preach from the Reader's Digest and preach from a novel he was reading. But it was certainly not pleasing to the Lord. So we prepare throughout the week, we pray throughout the week for the pastor and for uh, the intern and for the Sunday school teachers that God would give us the grace that we need, again, to study and discipline, uh, to understand, uh, to give time and effort to it. And that so this coming to so the Lord's Day, when it's preached, it is a sermon that has been well thought of, prayed through, and delivered with the unction of God's Spirit. You remember, a text has one meaning, but it has multiple applications. Paul, by God's grace, has this responsibility placed upon him, he says here in the text. Uh, he's been entrusted uh, by the command of God, our Savior, to preach the word. And so it is that all people who are in behind the pulpit are called to it or should be called to it by God. It is a calling. 
And at the end of this, notice what he says to Timothy, I mean to Titus, Titus, my true child in a common faith. Titus was converted under the Apostle Paul's ministry. That's obvious. So he calls him here, Titus, uh, my true child in a common faith. The common faith is the faith in Christ. Perhaps he puts it this way to him so Titus will understand the importance of his preaching. So Titus will understand the importance of being faithful to his calling. We have a common faith that you saw me, he perhaps is thinking. And what I did, Titus, we have a common faith, then likewise do this for the glory of Christ. And I think this speaks as three things to us, this common faith. One is unity. Unity in the body of Christ, a common faith. We are one. It speaks of love. That we are to love one another deeply. It says in John first epistle, they will know we are Christians. How? By our love. So it speaks of unity. It speaks of love. And it speaks of family. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what I say. That's what the Bible says. So a common family. And then finally Paul Uh, expresses his uh, prayers for him, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior be with you. He doesn't say that be with you. I added that in there, but that's what he's desiring. The grace of God to do your task. The grace of God to preach the word faithfully. And the peace of God to be with you. As you go through the responsibilities you have to do, may you do it with peace of mind and confidence and peace in the Lord. You know, imagine a man who is supposed to take medication, and he doesn't do it. Doesn't want to do it. Perhaps he doesn't believe it's actually good to do it. But he has diseases that, if treated, he can live, and he can live a healthy life. But he doesn't do it. Well, what happens? Well, you know what's going to happen. Is his disease going to get worse? He's going to get sick, and he's eventually going to die. When we forsake the proclamation of the word of God, or we come to worship not prepared or ill-prepared, then we are denying a great means of God's grace in our lives. You know, we have an opportunity here to worship Sunday morning and Sunday evening. I know some can't come on Sunday nights. I understand that, but more could than do. And tonight, I'll be preaching again through the book of, uh, of Jonah. And it's again another opportunity to sit on the proclamation of the Word of God. And think about this. When we have God's Word within us, we are armed by the Scriptures for whatever Satan may throw at us, whatever bitter providence we may happen to face, with that Word of God abiding in us, we are able to deal with it, whatever it may happen to be. And the more that we learn of God, the closer we draw to God, the more that we have Scripture in our hearts and minds through reading and the preaching of the Word of God, the more we will be able to deal with those things that come into our lives that will challenge our faith. As we know, our God does not lie. That should go a long way in encouraging you and in helping you to live faithfully to the Lord. He does not lie. Everything in his word is true. 
And I rest upon that. So we live by sight. No, we live by faith, not by sight. Because we believe in the invisible God who has created all things, who has redeemed the people for himself. Do you know him? Do you love him? If you don't, I would encourage you to come to faith. And Christian would remind you of what a grand opportunity, what a privilege, and what a blessing it is to have the Scriptures and to have the Word of God read and preached. Let's pray.